Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and uh, turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Luke. You might also have your scripture journal there with you. So however you're choosing to follow along, let's find together uh, Luke chapter 2. We, we come to the conclusion of Luke chapter 2. And so we're going to look at verses 41 through 52 this morning. This is part two of a message that we began uh, last Sunday entitled, Parenting Jesus. Parenting Jesus. And let's continue on in this text together. Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. So after three days... They found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding as well as his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. But he went down with them, came to Nazareth, and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and his stature and in favor with both God and man. Well, last week we asked ourselves the question, what was it like to be the parents of Jesus? What was it like to be the parents of Jesus? Now, we have a limited snapshot in Scripture of the childhood years of Christ. Uh, With the exception of one brief situation in Matthew chapter 2, which we'll look at here in a few moments, Luke chapter 2 is really, really all that we have. And when we open up Luke chapter 3 next Sunday, we will immediately fast forward to his adult years. So in this brief section following the events of his birth, we get a small glimpse into the childhood of our Lord Jesus. Now, I mentioned last week that we might be tempted to think that it had to be an easy job parenting Jesus, knowing that he was the perfect child. And by perfect, I mean his nature was sinless. But remember, God became a human being. And in willingly becoming a human being, 
he chose to lay down certain prerogatives of his divine nature in his incarnate form. Now that very truth in and of itself is a great mystery to us and there is no way that we can really fully comprehend the dynamic of this divine nature and human nature that is present and active in the triune God. This is why people like Austin go and get PhDs to help us make sense of it all. My point in reminding us of this is that Joseph and Mary still had parental responsibilities, although their son was the son of God. All right? They still had to do the things that we as parents do. They had to feed him. Wonder what that was like. Did, did they do the little airplane noise like we do? Like, you know? We don't think about those things when it comes to the Son of God. There were times in Jesus' life, and we can't pick out when those times were and when those times weren't. It seems laid out in Scripture that the bulk of it was in his childhood and at the end when he cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why has you forsaken me? There were times he laid down divine prerogatives and he took on the fullness of humanity. So, so they had to feed him. They had to teach him how to talk and to walk and other natural developments of childhood. And when we understand this aspect of the incarnation, it only serves to help us appreciate even more the truth that he is indeed our mediator who understands what it's like to be human, yet without sin. So Joseph and Mary had the same parental responsibilities any of us have. But while his nature was perfect, their nature was not. Mary and Joseph, as we mentioned last week, were imperfectly parenting the perfect child. Now, again, it's impossible to raise a perfect child. There was only one, so we must be careful that it is not our goal to be perfect parents nor that it is our goal to develop perfect children. Our goal is to be gospel-fueled, gospel-centered parents. And we want to develop families that look to Jesus and look like Jesus. Moms and dads, children and grandchildren that radiate the glory of Christ. That is our goal, not perfection, not perfection, but families that radiate the glory of Christ. And our text, through the family dynamic of Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, gives us a really good aim and goal in parenting. I want to show this to you one more time. Look again at verse 40 in Luke chapter 2. The Bible says that the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Then you fast forward to the verse we read a moment ago, verse 52. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. I mentioned it last week. Let me say it again. I, I don't think there's any parent in this room who would want anything less than that for our own children. That is, Jesus matured and developed as a, as a human being. He was filled with wisdom and God's gracious favor was on his life. 
I think that's a good goal, a good aim. I want, I want my kids, Kate, Keegan, Ellie, Jaden, I want them to mature and develop as human beings. I want them to learn to take care of themselves. I want them to learn how to live as adults. That's my responsibility is to prepare them for the future. I want them to live with wisdom. I want them to have great wisdom, make good choices. And I pray that God's gracious favor will be on their lives. Now, we understand Jesus is like no other. God's gracious favor was for a unique purpose. This is the divine, perfect, sinless Son of God. We understand that. But it's still a good goal for all of us as parents to have. I want my kids to develop, mature. I want them to be wise. I want them to have God's favor upon their lives. So in asking the question, what was it like to be the parents of Jesus, we examined last week two of three things that are exemplified by Mary and Joseph in our text. Let's, let's just mention them briefly, and I've got them here on the screen just so you can be reminded of it. Number one, the first thing we saw was ordinary, everyday obedience to God's Word. Ordinary, everyday obedience to God's Word. Verse 39 says that they did everything according to the law of the Lord. Again, I can't go back and re-preach it, but just in summary, from Jesus' circumcision to Mary's purification, they were a family that was wholly given to ordinary, everyday obedience to God's Word. That's how they parented Jesus. And for all of us, that's where hopeful parenting begins. God's Word as the supreme priority in our home, not a secondary option in our home. And you get very clearly in our text here that Joseph and Mary, even though they didn't have a lot, they made God's word the priority. God's word was the authority. Over and over again, the things that they did, it was according to the word of God, according to the word of God, according to the word of God. That's where all hopeful parenting begins. When we commit our families to live in such a way that we are going to do the things that we do according to the Word of God. Ordinary, everyday obedience. And then we saw a second thing. Moment by moment, trusting God's plan. That was the second thing that Mary and Joseph exemplified for us. Ordinary, everyday obedience to God's Word, and moment by moment, trusting God's plan. And that's, that's every aspect of the Christian life, isn't it? Including our responsibilities in parenting. It's, it's a walk of faith. Remember, Joseph and Mary were poor. They, they didn't have much to offer the king of kings in terms of material extravagance and opportunity. But by faith, they determined to raise Jesus with what they had been given by God. Just moment by moment, trusting God's plan with what they had. Moment by moment, trusting God's plan with what they were seeing and hearing. Moment by moment, trusting God's plan even with what they did not yet know about the future. Especially when Simeon said to Mary that her son will not only divide many people, but he will also pierce the soul of his mother. In other words, Mary would experience deep pain and anguish at what her son would go through in terms of suffering and trauma. In fact, we didn't talk about this last week, but this anguish was certainly experienced quickly in their family. When in Matthew chapter 2, King Herod made a decree to murder all male boys 
two years and under in an attempt to destroy the one that was be called that was to be called king of the Jews. It was a very arrogant, prideful man. He wanted no competition. There can't be another king in this man. And the wise man came. You remember the story? We're, we're here looking for the star. The star is pointing us to the king of the Jews. And he starts conspiring and saying, well, we've got to find this baby. Where are we going to find it? Well, uh, well, let's just kill all the male boys under the age of two and wipe them out. So think about, think about how parenting began for Mary and Joseph for a moment. It had to be a season filled with fear and anxiety. An angel shows up and tells Joseph to take his family and hide out in Egypt until Herod dies. And, that, and that's what they did. That's, that's how they responded to this difficult season, moment by moment, trusting God's plan. And so it is with our own families. We lead our families to moment by moment trust God's plan with what we have with what we're learning, and even with what we do not yet know. So in this part two of our subject, Parenting Jesus, I want to give you one more thing that we see in our text as we ask the question, what was it like to be the parents of Jesus? Three in total. We looked at two last week. Ordinary everyday obedience to God's word. Moment by moment trusting God's plan. Here's the third one. Let me give it to you, learning to let go and yield to God's purposes. Learning to let go and yield to God's purposes. All right, let's get honest. How many of you this morning have ever left one of your kids behind somewhere realizing later... That they weren't with you? Anybody ever done that? Oh, good. You're being honest. I like that. Hey, let me ask the younger kids who are in here for just a moment. Have any of your parents left you behind? Let's put it specifically like this. Have any of your parents left you behind at church thinking that you were with them? Anybody done that at all? It's okay. It's okay. The Van Binscotens are saying, raise your hand, Jonah. Raise your hand. It's okay, Mom and Dad. There's no shame in this. It happens. It happened to us. On one particular service night many years ago, my wife's sister and uh, her mother were in town visiting, and Keegan was just, just a baby. I'm not sure where I was. Her wife and sister was in town, so obviously I wasn't around. I'm not sure where I was, but Kathleen and everybody else was loading up in the vehicle, getting ready to pull out of the parking lot when somebody says, hey, wait, wait, Keegan's in the lobby still in his car seat. (laughs) We're fixing to leave our son right there in the middle of church. Well, that's the setting of our text. And I'd like for you to think with me this morning that it is very possible that our knowledge of the story came directly from Mary as Luke was compiling this narrative of the life of Christ. Again, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God as the Holy Spirit moves upon the writers, but God used human authors. 
And in the first four verses of Luke 1, we learn that Dr. Luke worked very hard in compiling this narrative from what? Eyewitnesses. It's very possible that Luke set up an appointment with Mary, sat down with her, and asked her some questions about what it was like to parent Jesus. Imagine that he sat down with Mary and said, hey, what's one of your most memorable moments in raising Jesus? Something that stood out to you, defining his, his childhood. Perhaps Mary said, well, there were a lot of things. But let me tell you what happened to us when he was 12 years old. I'll never forget it. And so we have the story. Look at it in verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. Now let me just stop right here and say once again that this was a worshiping family. It was a worshiping family. Remember, Jesus' customs were learned by the customs of his parents. And worshiping regularly was one of their customs as a family. They go up every year to the feast of the Passover. They come into the synagogue, the temple, according to their customs. Joseph and Mary were dedicated to raising their family to the routine, faithful worshiping of their God. The Passover feast was a celebration of God delivering Israel out of Egyptian bondage. And according to the law, it was required for all adult males to attend. But here's what's interesting, okay? Catch this. No such requirement was placed on the women. So the fact that we see Joseph and Mary going up to Jerusalem together as a family every year for this particular feast shows us, in my opinion, just how dedicated they were to corporate worship. Their commitments to the Lord were not dictated by the least that they could do. Joseph's not saying, hey, You know, I got to go by law up to Jerusalem this week for the feast of the Passover and the unleavened bread to follow. You going to go with me or you going to stay at home? Well, you know, I don't have to be there. God doesn't require me to be there, so why don't I just just stay at home? No, no, they they, they worship together as a family. She didn't have to be there. She wanted to be there. There, they, they were committed to God with deep devotion. They had a genuine relationship with God that was based upon love and faithfulness, not rules and obligations. The other significant factor is Jesus' age here. He's now 12. He's reached the age when Jewish boys were considered to have begun adulthood. I know, some of you think about your own 12-year-old kids, and you're thinking, you got to be kidding me, right? No, this is it. This is, this is, this is Jewish custom. You know, at the age of 12, you reach adulthood, and now, now they were expected to start taking responsibility for their own decisions. Now, the age of 12 is a big year for all children, but especially, especially Jewish children. 
Now look at verse 43. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they, were, they went a day's journey. So after the week-long festival, everyone begins to make their journey home. It appears that Mary and Joseph have a large family dynamic because that's how they're traveling in mass with their family. Now, the group is so large that they don't realize Jesus is not with them. They, they assume perhaps that he's back in the back with the grandparents or the, or the cousins. It's a natural assumption, by the way. Whenever our family travels together on a vacation or whatever the case may be, uh, our kids love riding with their cousins or riding with the grandparents. I don't know what it is about mom and dad, but occasionally they would rather be with other members of the family. So I don't think it's a stretch to assume something like that has probably taken place. Joseph and Mary are up there maybe with their brothers and sisters and enjoying conversation as they're walking along thinking that Jesus is probably back there with the cousins or grandma and grandpa getting spoiled and all the good things that grandparents do for their grandkids. But then they begin to realize after traveling all day that Jesus is not with them. Verse 44, they, they begin to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. Verse 45, they did not find him, so they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. So, so follow the time here, timeline here. A day's journey out when they discover that he's not there. They don't find him. So you got a whole day's journey back to Jerusalem where they think they left him. That's two days. On the third day, they arrive back. They arrive back. Three days that their son is missing and them not knowing where he is. Now, piously, you might think, well, what's Joseph and Mary's deal? I, I want to I say be very, very careful about that kind of disposition, especially in settings and customs that we're very unfamiliar with. I do not believe that this is neither parental neglect, nor is it childhood rebellion. I'm 100% sure it's not childhood rebellion. You know, there, there are some so-called scholars that would suggest that to us in this text, that Jesus should have been with his parents, and if he was obeying his parents, he would have been there. He wouldn't have stayed back. Listen, this is a part of the incarnation of Christ. It is possible for him to unknowingly stress out his mom and dad. He's a kid. It wasn't necessarily a sin for him to stay back, as we will see here in just a moment, by his own words. Plus, if it was childhood rebellion, let's just close our Bibles and go home, because that would contradict the rest of the Bible. And the Bible is very clear that there was no sin in him. From the moment of his birth to the moment of his death, his resurrection, for all of eternity. He is the sinless incarnate Son of God. This is not rebellion. It's not parental Neglect. Here's what it is. Something significant is happening. A change is taking place. A major change. Not only in Jesus' human development and relationships, but also in his identity, 
as the Son of God. And this is why perhaps if Luke interviews Mary, this is the story that comes to mind. Because it's at this moment things begin to radically change. Look at it in verse 46. After three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. It's quite a scene, isn't it? They find Jesus not on a playground and not on a soccer field, but in the temple. In the temple. That within itself is significant because the temple is the center of worship. It's the place of God's dwelling. So it should not surprise us when we find Jesus in the house of God. So Jesus is sitting there listening to the teachers teach and asking them questions. And everyone is amazed at what they are beholding. They are amazed at the inquisitive nature and the understanding of this 12-year-old boy. I think the next thing proves the point that parenting Jesus was not so easy as one might think. Because look at verse 48. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us? Why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. After three days, mom doesn't walk into the temple and say, oh, look, Joseph, isn't this so sweet? Look at our little boy. Oh, this is amazing. He's growing right up. Remember the first time she heard the news of Jesus, she wrote a song called The Magnificat, singing prayer. We don't see her writing a sequel to The Magnificat. Not at all. For three days, Mary's been stressed out. For three days, she's been filled with anxiety. They've been searching frantically for their 12-year-old boy. So it was natural. A natural parental concern on their part. To say what? Why you do this to us? We've been looking everywhere for you. But again... What we now know is that something significant was happening. A change was taking place, specifically a change in his relationship with Joseph and Mary. As he transitions toward adulthood, as well as his earthly ministry, as the incarnate Son of God. And so here's how he responds. Verse 49, he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Do you not know that I must be in my father's house? I wrote down three things in my notes. Number one, he's expressing in this moment of his young humanity that he knows he's the son of God. At this point, he is expressing in this moment of his young humanity that he knows he is the son of God. He calls it His father's house. Why is that significant? Because the Jews didn't refer to the temple as their father's house. They referred to the temple as the temple. The temple, the temple, the temple. So this remark was a major declaration by Jesus. He didn't say, did you not know I would be in the temple? No, he's declaring something about himself 
that perhaps up to this point he has not yet said to his earthly mom and dad. This is my father's house. He's identifying who he is. And who is this 12-year-old boy? God's son. He's the Lord's Christ. God in the flesh. So he's expressing in this moment of his young humanity that he knows he's the son of God. He knows he's the son of God. The second thing I wrote down here is that he's also asking his parents if they had forgotten what was told to them about who he was. Have you forgotten what was told to you about who I was? Did you see it there at the beginning of his question? Did you not know? In other words, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten what was told to you 12 years ago? Have you forgotten what Gabriel said? Have you forgotten that I belong to God? Have you forgotten that you presented me to the Lord before the priest in the synagogue claiming that I belong to God? Have you forgotten that? And then the third thing I wrote down is that he's emphasizing that among all his relationships, follow this, oh, we need to get this, mom and dad, that among all his relationships, his primary relationship is with his heavenly father. His primary relationship is with his heavenly father. He said, I must be in my father's house. Oh, can I please? I, I, I really want to be here. I really like it here. And all that's true. But what he's saying is, no, I must do this. It is the will of God for me to do this. You see, Jesus' ultimate purpose in life was not to please his parents, but to please God. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But what Joseph and Mary are learning here is the hard lesson. The hard lesson of that transition we're all going to go through, and some of us already have, of learning to let their child go. It wasn't easy for them. And it's not going to be easy for me and Kathleen. I'm sure, like has been the situation in many of your lives, it's going to be difficult, perhaps even painful. But it's essential to biblical parenting, even when we don't understand what God is doing with their life. So we do not raise them to keep them close to us. We raise them to let them spread their wings and fly to fulfill God's purposes. Not my agenda for their life, God's agenda for their life. Not what I want them to grow up to be, but what God wants them to mature and develop to be. It's the hard lesson of letting go and saying, God, I will not stand in the way of what you desire for my children. And it's proven here that Mary and Joseph didn't understand it all. Because look at the very next verse, verse 50. They did not understand the saying that he spoke to him. You know what? I find so much comfort in that. 
Because again, you think about the theological dynamics of the Bible, and especially what most Joseph and Mary are experiencing here with Jesus. He's God and the Son, yet they've learned how to teach him how to feed, yet he's holding the world in his hands, and you know, his divine nature, his human nature. Sometimes I look at that church, and honestly, I have no idea what's going on. I just take it by faith. He's 100% God. He's 100% man. I don't always understand it all. It's okay if you don't always understand it all. Joseph and Mary who lived with him did not always understand it all. And so it is in the course of our life. We don't always understand what God is doing, how God is leading, how God is moving. Even with the hindsight of their angelic prophecies, Joseph and Mary still struggled to make sense of all of it. But don't miss this. We're coming to the last verse. Look at verse 51. To me, this is so important. After that conversation, they had a family talk. Had a family talk. So after the family talk, he went down with them. He came to Nazareth. Hey, teenagers, look at this. Fourth and fifth graders, look at this. He came to Nazareth, Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect, sinless Son of God, and he was submissive to his imperfect parents. Let that sink in for just a moment. I know your parents aren't perfect. We're not claiming to be. Jesus knew his mom and dad were not perfect, but yet he submitted to them. He submitted to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. There it is again. She's a thinker, isn't she? She loves to just think about all that's taking place. And so Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. You see, his primary, his primary relationship, as we've already noted, was to his heavenly father. But he still, he still remained submissive to his parents. We don't have very many glimpses into the teenage years of Jesus' life, except for this one. So the one thing that is said about him, teenagers, I love that y'all sit together over here. We've got a few scattered over here, too. What was it like for Jesus to be a teen? Let me tell you what it was like. Ongoing submission to authority. Ongoing submission to authority. So we're saying that from Mary and Joseph's perspective in parenting Jesus, that the things we need to learn are ordinary everyday obedience, moment by moment trusting God, and then learning to let go, learning to let go and yield to God's purposes. So what do we take home from this? Here's, here's how I want us to close. I got an application for the parents, I got an application for the children, and I got an application for all of us. All right, first to the parents. If you're a parent, raise your hand. Let's see all your parents. All right, grandparents, everybody. Okay, very good. Here we go. You ready? Let me remind you, whether they're still in your house or not, we must remember who our children ultimately belong to. (laughs) It's so strange for me now that mom and dad are here. (laughs) Because I remember things like, oh my goodness, I'm probably going to get in trouble. Your soul belongs to God, but your hide belongs to me. (laughs) All right, you know. 
It's true, isn't it? He'll probably be moving out of his office this week. I remember stuff like that. I say stuff like that. Now look, we're church-going people. We present our kids to the Lord. We bring them to Awana. We let them sit with us in church. Look, we know, don't we? We know. We know. But let's be honest. A lot of times we forget. We forget. That our children ultimately belong to God. That their primary relationship, their primary relationship, look at this, it's not with me, it's with God, their father, God, their creator, God who designed them for a purpose that I'm not even fully aware of yet. So their ultimate purpose in life is to please God. And all of us, including my wife and I, need to evaluate our parenting on a regular basis in light of whom we are raising our children to ultimately please. Now, by the way, that's not mutually exclusive. That's not to say, okay, that if I'm pleasing God, I can't please my parents. Or It's not mutually exclusive, all right? I understand that. We'll get to that here in just a moment. However, it is possible to emphasize as parents pleasing us more than we emphasize pleasing God. That is possible. So evaluate, mom and dad, what what is it that makes you so frustrated when they don't keep the toys in order the way that you want them to? Or when their eyes and mind is absorbing the corruption of the world through media and television and the such. Sometimes we get more ticked off about them not finishing the green beans than we do about them memorizing their Awana verses. It's not mutually exclusive. Our kids, memorize your Awana verses and eat the green beans. Okay, it's not mutually exclusive. But we cannot forget that as parents, we are raising our kids to please God, not ultimately us. All right, you with me? Okay, number two. To children, if you're a child, raise your hand. If you wish you were still 12 years old, raise your hand, right? Yeah, that's most of us, isn't it? All right, here's my application to you. Now, this is, this is good because we see this in Jesus. Uh, you can put the will of God First in your life, without teenagers dishonoring your family. Did you hear that? You can put the will of God first in your life without dishonoring your parents. That not what we see here with Jesus? He's the perfect example of it. And he made it clear when he said, I must be in my father's house. He said, I must do the will of God. But that did not keep him from living his earthly life in submission to the authority of his earthly parents. He was the perfect fulfillment 
of the command, honor your mother and your father. Now, do you think there's ever a time where the two clash? Yes. And the scripture deals with that. That if we are ever put in a position where they clash and our godliness is at stake, it is better to obey God than it is to man. But Jesus shows us that it is possible to do the will of God without ever dishonoring your parents even when they don't understand the will of God for your life. All right, one more. Here's to all of us. Here's to all of us. And then we'll be done. The message to all of us from this text is that Jesus is indeed God in the flesh. Jesus is indeed God in the flesh. He said of himself in John chapter 6, I have come down from heaven. God came down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Now this is why God became man. His divine nature could never die. Okay? God as a spirit could never die. So what did he do? He assumed a human nature so that through his death and resurrection, he would be able to save anyone who believe on him. He became man so that he could die as a perfect man in our place to free us from sin and give us the grace and glory of eternal life. This is why, if you're visiting with us this morning, this is why our entire life is wrapped up in this man named Jesus. Because Jesus is God. He is God in the flesh. And salvation from sin, death, and hell is only found in Him. He came to die that we might live. And Philippians tells us that it is by his obedience to his heavenly Father that we are made righteous as children of God. I need you to know as you look at this 12-year-old boy who's saying things that no parent in this room would understand a 12-year-old to say, that the one who is speaking is not just any other boy. This is the Son of God, the sinless Messiah who came to give us life. I'm sure Mary looked at Luke after the interview and said, you know what, there's a lot more I could say, but honestly, I've been thinking about it over and over again to those of you. I, I just want to keep that right here in my heart. And that's the childhood of Jesus. He increased in wisdom and in stature, favor with God and man. And to us, it helps us so that we not only see that he is God, but that we also see through his earthly family dynamic that it is ordinary, everyday obedience to God's word, that it is moment by moment trusting God's plan, and that it is learning to let go and yield to God's purposes that helps us reach the goal of raising a family that looks to Jesus and looks like Jesus. That's what I want. I want our family, starting with me, 
starting with that, to look to Jesus always and to look like Jesus. And may God help us to accomplish that. Let's stand together for prayer.